Hello and welcome to the official podcast of Palate Exposure, featuring Alona Thompson, a podcast for those seeking the ultimate in wine, food, and travel. Each week, she interviews winemakers, chefs, celebrities, and a variety of guests that shape the way we enjoy life. Hello, Ilona Thompson here with Palette Exposure. We're interviewing today a gentleman that I've, whose career fascinated me. Um, and I've had an opportunity to have a few chats with him, and I know you guys are in for a treat. He has a fantastic backstory and really learned, informed, and passionate point of view on all things wine, not just what he happens to make. His name is Simone Fauri, and he is a winemaker for Crown Point Vineyards. So as I like always to start from the beginning, so the beginning is where you're from, where were you born? Um, we, we figured that you're French, but there's a lot more to that story. Um, yes, always. So tell me, tell me more. Tell me where, where it all began. Well, um, it's, um, it's a long journey. It's been a long journey for me, for sure. But I'm originally from Northern Rhone. Um, uh, my family is from there. I grew up in the area for a while. And when I fell in love with wine, I decided to go to Italy, go to Barolo area, um, went to university there, um, got my degree there, um, worked in a few different places over Barolo and Sicily. And um, and I thought it'd be weird for a French guy to not have a French degree. So I went to Bordeaux after that and got a degree in winemaking and uh, viticulture at the University of uh, of, um, of Bordeaux. I worked in a few different places in Bordeaux, Cru Classé, Domaine de Chevalier, and uh, Chateau Pichon Longueville uh, in Pauillac. And after that, I met a few very interesting people, such as Michel Roland, and uh, talked about what to do next. And for me, next was traveling. I, I caught the travel bug in, in Italy, and I wanted to to keep going that route. And it came kind of the idea of going to California. That was in 2010. I came to work for Robert Mondavi Winery for harvest really enjoyed it after that i went to australia in the Yarra valley worked for a place called Cahilton, and um and it's kind of funny because um i, I applied uh, for a job one morning and that was for one of the wineries of the harlan estate group uh at the time the napa valley reserve and kind of totally randomly not knowing what it was, I got the job and I came uh, again, uh, or I came back to Napa one more time. I remember doing the interview was on a Saturday morning, you know, with the time difference in Australia, I was hangover and I still got the job. So, so it's kind of, it's kind of fun. Um, and which, which makes me think I've done too many job interviews where I was hangover and I've always been very successful. So maybe there's something to be said there. It either works well because you talk less or maybe I'm just too hangover all the time and that needs to stop. So, uh, sorry about that, everyone. 
but yeah, and I came back to Napa one more time and um, I've always wanted to work for Michel Roland. And after that, I got the chance and opportunity to go and work for him in Argentina and Mendoza for a little while. And after doing all this kind of a long journey, someone put a good word for me at Harlan Estate and I was able to come back and work for um, a good chunk of the year at Harlan Estates. That was before meeting the owners at Maryville that offered me the job of uh, winemaker there at Maryville Vineyards in Napa and take over the program. So I've been in Napa for a while and recently with Harvest 2019, I came to Santa Barbara to start making wine here at Crown Point Vineyards. I've always been very, very curious and interested, of course, about Santa Barbara because I love the ocean, I surf, and uh, I've always found Santa Barbara fascinating mostly also because most of it is planted with Syrah. And coming from Northern Rhone, I always keep a, a very strong interest for Syrah. And, um, and got me curious about Santa Barbara. And down the road, you know, this opportunity came and work here and uh, we make Cabernets, so nothing to do with Syrah. We are quite a outlier, I think, for the, for the area. But we're very passionate about what we do, and we think we've got something magical here. So, anyways, that's me in a nutshell. Thank you. That's um, quite a story, and I made a mental note to practice this great advice, which is being hangover more. That's that's the path I'm leaning towards because clearly it worked well for you. I haven't practiced it enough, so this, there you go, guys. This is free advice that works so well because your career clearly has been on the fast track. You. Well, maybe because you it's harder to say something, you say less of the superfluous things. So you <laughs> kind of had more content to what you're saying. Who knows? No, I'm, I'm, that's my biggest takeaway. No kidding, of course. Um, it's, it's a very impressive history. I mean, first of all, hailing from Northern Rhone, which is an iconic um, destination for all things um, Syrah and Grenache, and being surrounded by that. I would imagine since birth. Um, there are not so many people from Northern Rhone too. It's a very small wine region. Uh -huh. um, and then you decided to venture into the great, greater world and find yourself in Italy, which is like an extraordinary kaleidoscope of all things native varieties. They probably have more native varieties than France has cheeses, right? Um, That's and being exposed to that, you know, symphony of everything um, and having that background that you deliberately chose for yourself because you could have probably gone an easier route and then you went to the university of bordeaux you could have probably stuck around there and worked with the wineries you know in there's plenty to do there but you seem to have this almost nomadic spirit when you need to experience other things and test other waters is that true absolutely yeah i think we talked about that last time um yeah yeah i don't know i get uh it's a blessing and a curse, you know. I think I get bored after a little while if I if I'm not, uh, you know, <laughs> if I'm stuck somewhere maybe. Um, but that's no, that that's very good. Yeah, yeah. I've always felt like I needed to explore, discover new things, find you know my own route, and that applies also to winemaking. You know, find our own way to make wine. 
And I think for the longest time, I was very attracted about the idea of being a pioneer, you know, being the first one in one area and trying to understand how to grow the grapes, how to make the wines and kind of blaze the trail that way. Now with, you know, a few more years behind me, I kind of want to, I love the idea of making wine from a very famous crew single vineyard somewhere in Burgundy or in Northern Rhone and try to confront myself with hundreds of years of different wines and vintages and winemakers and, and try to, you know, maybe put something out there. It's just a, just a thought. I, I've never done it. I don't, I'm not even sure it's going to happen one day, but now that this is more appealed to me now than, than it did in the past. It's really interesting. Um, clearly your past journeys, you know, the hallmark of it is wanderlust and you just described this restlessness within you. Do you know where it comes from? Is it something that you have learned about yourself early on in your childhood, young adulthood, or what, what is the origin of that? Mm, I don't know. I think, um, I think the origin could be, you know, I think I just want to make wine. I just love to make wine. And uh, the more, you know, different wines I make, the almost uh, the happier I am. Only if they're good, though. And, uh, and I just look forward to making new wines every year. So there's part of that. Then growing up, my family and I traveled a lot. And so maybe that's part of this, too. You know, I know that you can move to different places and you can do new things there and you can succeed and um, and uh, and that that could be part of the part of the energy out there but um yeah i think i'm just really curious about things too and i'm really curious about what the next vintage is going to be about and what those lines uh will have to say so kind of all, all that good stuff all together yeah so you've clearly worked in several countries and each you know wine region or regions in your case have had very unique you know contributions to your winemaking mind uh what were some yeah. of the biggest takeaways you know let's start with argentina with mendoza what was that like what was it like um that was a long harvest. That was a long, long, long harvest with, you know, picking fruit. It's a, a different season, right? Over there, it's in our, in our winter. So that would be the equivalent of picking fruit up till the end of November. It was like oh, mid-November every day since September 1st. So uh, very extended and, uh, and um, high pace harvest the whole way. But... Uh, an incredible, I think, dedication and attention to details from start to finish. There was no giving up on that, um, which uh, which was amazing to to witness. And you know, from the first cluster till the last, uh, we entered. The level of quality and dedication was second to none, and that is inspiring to me because. When I get tired, you know, I often look back at what we did this year, that year, and um, and it pushes me to to keep going. <clears throat> so that was the main thing. 
out there that I remembered. Um, then, you know, it's funny because every country and every place I worked was somewhat different. Um, Australia, for example, I think I discovered a lot. I matured a lot being there. Um, we made wines that, sorry guys, if you're listening, we made some really good wines and we made a lot of wines that I would not, they were still good, but I would not enjoy and uh, I think I learned a part of the industry that I am, I don't connect with so much, which is more of a lower end wine, um, more of a framed wine. So you do corrections into the lab rather than the vineyard. And that's not really my philosophy, but you know what? I'm, I'm glad I witnessed it. I'm glad I was part of it and I learned from it. I also learned that I don't like it, which is a good thing. I mean, yeah, it, but I don't like it. Uh, it doesn't resonate with me. That's what I mean. And um, but a lot of very, very good wines in Australia on, on you know, family-owned small wineries uh, with a lot of focus on vineyard sites on terroir. If you if you want, um, they make beautiful wines with very strong personality. So learn from that. That was very interesting. And in Napa, you know, throughout the years, I focused a lot on uh, high-end wines, uh, which I've always done, but uh, with no, comprom or no compromise approach, we're really going to go all in best we can. Everything has to be perfect. There's not one uh, imperfect berry that's going to get into that tank. And then everything we do is to the highest level. And then that is that is what I enjoy and what I really connect with at the end of the day. It's really an interesting observation. Napa, of course, has become known as one of the world's foremost region, you know, to grow grapes as well as wine production and also to a certain extent marketing. I mean, direct consumer model really is prevalent for the U.S. and not the rest of the world. So you get direct feedback. Um, you know, it's a very intimate relationship. Yeah, I, I was recently in Bordeaux before uh, before the COVID, and uh, I haven't been in Bordeaux for ten years. You know, after college, uh, I left, and I kind of got busy doing other things. And I came back to to work on some terroir studies for for a few weeks uh, while being at Crown Point, and uh, very interesting. You know, I went to the old places where I used to work. Very interesting to notice the attention now they have to direct to consumer, to what they call the inotourism to some extent. Um, things have changed a lot uh, since, uh, since my old days out there. Still a lot to improve and everybody has something to improve for sure, but they're putting some effort and being aware of it, no doubt. That's really interesting. In a mere decade, things have dramatically change in terms of awareness of what you're describing. Um, you know, that's really cool. I'm hoping that, you know, wine tourism is such a extraordinary, um, you know, phenomena that brings a lot of dollars to the wine country that I think paying close attention to it and developing it is really important. No doubt. Um, during your years in Napa, um, what were your observations? I know that there's a lot of things that are being done meticulously and, you know, major capital investment and you know search for perfectionism was there anything missing 
was there anything that stood out to you that, you know, really could use improvement or, you know, more finesse? Anything? Oh. Um, yeah, yeah, there is, you know, and, and I think it's, I think it's very interesting for everybody um, coming from the old world. For me, Napa lacks a little bit of um, authentic, authentic, ah, geez, I can say authenticity. It's a mouthful. Yeah, <laughs> uh, I got too much wine. It's it's not really, you know, it, it could be a little bit more authentic, and uh, and and that is because it's new because it's a new area but you know having a little bit more wine culture out there you know we're here for the wine to enjoy the wine what i really enjoy about napa is the diversity of terroirs you can make wines from different area the different areas and they're going to taste completely different and the way you're going to make them will be different as well um very modern um industry very very dynamic a lot of good things are happening it's a model for a lot if not all other wine regions in the world but along the way we kind of lost a little bit of what the wine culture is about you know about sharing about uh real hospitality uh about being true uh, about being humble as well you know, and I think if you're able to achieve that, um, then you're really on top of the world. You know, adding an experience that is not only about taking your money, but also about uh, living to the fullest and uh, and sharing, you know, really that great passion that we all have for wine. So being a little bit more authentic, I think, is uh, is great. Um, but you know, it also takes time. It also takes time. And it's a young wine region. So it's a little bit negative what I'm saying and I'm sorry, but, uh, but you know, what I love about Italy is that you go to Tuscany, you go to Umbria. I mean, those places, you know, they've got something special, even the wines are not necessarily always special but they're always fun there's always something you know that 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 goes beyond and so if if napa could tap it a little bit into that that'd be great you know i don't think it's negative at all i think actually it's a very healthy discourse to have napa grew up very fast and it started out with such a generous spirit of hospitality i'm referring to mandavi of course yeah, yeah, and you know what? What I enjoy about Santa Barbara is that it's there. Santa Barbara is very authentic. Um, in, in California, has a special place. Santa Barbara County um, is like that. You know, the vintners are, are most of them fourth, first generation. They've got that passion. Um, they are present in the vineyard and in the tasting room, and 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 they're the direct makers and. Uh, and then it's laid back. It's fun. Um, it's very interesting. It's very interesting. It's great to, to, to be part of that. Oh, I can only imagine how energizing that is. I mean, you know, direct to consumer connection, I think it's paramount to success of any wine brand. And the communication, of course, a lot of it was in person through the point of sale, the tasting rooms, and now with COVID, 
that's all changing rather rapidly. It's becoming virtual. But those wineries that built those strong relationships with consumers are clearly faring better than those that didn't. And that's a hugely teachable moment right there. Mm -hmm. uh, the fact that Santa Barbara, of course, I mean, it's a different animal together geographically and the hospitality has to be impacted by, you know, the fact that it's accessible, you know, the land is not as expensive. So, you know, the tasting fees are different. The personnel is different in the tasting room. Um, and that participation of the owner that hands on and being present is really, really important. Um, you know, Santa Barbara, of course, got a pretty big push from a movie we never want to talk about called Sideways. Um, but I think they really took and ran with what wasn't even the wine movie in the first place. It, of course, popularized Pinot Noir. But I think what it also did is that it brought a lot of attention to a region. And um, what's happening with a lot of producers is that it, now that they have access to more resources, they're also elevating the, the wine production piece of it, right? Mm -hmm. um, and they're attracting talent such as yours. Um, speaking of talent, um, you've worked with Michelle Rolong amongst other mentors. What were some of the biggest lessons that you've learned from Michelle? Um... Well, what I like about Michelle is that, you know, he's very humble. Um, you know, despite being who he is, he makes sure that at the end of the day, you know, we'll get, we'll get in his car and he'll take us back home and, and uh, give us a ride and, uh, you know, make sure that we had anything we needed to, uh, to keep going. Um, that, that, that I love, you know, and, and I think also if there's one thing you, you'd remember from him is that in the end, it's all about the sensitivity. Um, it's all about, there's something in wine that you cannot, you cannot, you know, draw a formula, an algorithm that would make it work, but it's about the sensitivity. And, and this is the difference between um, a good wine and an exceptional wine. There's something in the exceptional wine that you cannot really describe. There is the emotion that is out there. And, and the emotion, you, you cannot really build it. You have to, you have to use the sensitivity to, to make it work. It's like a piece of music, you know, you could play, you could play a score really well, the Ninth Symphony of Beethoven if you want, you can play the, school, the, the, the notes right, you can play the, the rhythm right, but there's something that if you add the emotion into it or whatever piece of music you could think of, then it's a whole different, um, it's a whole different opera and a whole different uh, uh, piece. So, you know, with wine, it's the same thing. You can have good grapes, you can do it right, you can, you can be on time and you can do everything good. But then at the end of the day, you might be missing something. And I think it's also why it is so hard to go from good to great, you know, in wine business, because um, it's hard to, to get the right timing and the right sensitivity uh, for everything. And that's something that we aspire every year, year after year, is like we aspire to make the best possible wine, you know, the, the, the perfect wine, as they say. So would it be fair to say that he has any kind of 
superhuman abilities. I think I know the answer, but I just want to hear from you. Clearly, he's known for his palatal prowess, but what you're describing is very different, actually. You're describing the intuition, um, sort of the gut level, when he knows when things are right, that may have been der derived from multitude of data points. Uh, yeah, absolutely. A lot of experience, no doubt. You know, uh, I think... Uh, you know, when I was in Bordeaux last uh, few months, uh, last month, when, two months ago, a friend of me told me, he's like, yeah, you know, you can, uh, you can, he comes, he does it, it's done. And then you can spend the whole afternoon trying to redo it and whatnot, you won't beat his blend. And it's true that it's, uh, you know, uh, the fun part of this is like, I imagine my friends trying to redo the blends of hundred different ways and not being able to, to uh to achieve the same uh the same blend and, and just as good as he did so it's kind of kind of really fun and i'm sure that this happens more than we think it's got to be a little intimidating just in the sense that someone makes it look so easy and they can't be um there has to be so many components and hands together to i don't think it is uh, intimidating you know i think at this point um, he's one of the best out there and you know for the for the young folks like me uh, uh, it's it's just wonderful to be able to witness that and learn from it you know it's just tremendous tremendous uh, uh, opportunity and uh, you know it's just like you're, you're you know if that ever happens you, you're you're playing tennis with with uh, with Roger uh, or you know you're 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 seeing grace, you know, in one way or another. So if you were to make your own wine, which I suspect someday might happen. Um, I've done already. You have? Yeah, yeah. How do I know about that? No one tells me nothing. What is it called? It's called uh, Domaine Forigo. Well, it's it's my own wine just because it has my name on it. Uh, Pinot Noir from Sonoma Coast. I started making in 2016 and 2017 just has my name on it, but you know, every wine I make or have been involved with, it's been the same for me. You know, I, I, I don't put my name on the label, but, uh, but I sign it in one way or another. So, um, so I'm all, I, 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 I try to be as proud as, as all of them, even if it has my name on it or not. So is it available? Is it commercially? It's available. It's available. It turns out it's good too. So that's that's. Uh, I'm going to put your website name so that we can tell the folks where they can acquire it. And yeah, it's uh, domainfourigros.com. So like my last name, F-A-U-R-Y-G-R-O-S.com. Got it. Well, I'll be the first one checking it out right after we finish this podcast because now I'm immensely curious. Sonoma Coast is one of my favorite places on the planet. So, um, yes, very, very. I wanted to make a Pinot that, uh, you know, focusing mostly on cab, I wanted to make Pinot for fun. And I'm from Northern Rhone, but uh, most of my friends are in Burgundy. My parents live in Burgundy now. And uh, when you're in Burgundy, you, you taste wines. Your Pinots are tannic. And you can taste the Pinot after a Bordeaux. You can taste the Burgundy, actually, I shouldn't say Pinot. You can taste the Burgundy after a Bordeaux and vice versa, go back and forth all night. And, and those wines you drink, you, you drink with, uh, with steak. So they're full on, you know, uh, reds. 
And I wanted to see that because I thought that Pinot in California, most of the time is a little too gentle. It's a little too polite. And, uh, and I'm not like that. And so I wanted to have something that had a little bit more, a little bit more, uh, uh, a little meaner, if you know what I mean. That's really interesting. So what's your fruit source, may I ask? It's uh, from a friend's vineyard called Seabird Ranch. Uh, they're amazing people. And uh, I was, I was kind of stumbled into it. It was almost dry farm, you know, very, very, uh, minimal intervention type of vineyard and, and it works really well there there's something there that is hard to describe it's like there's the power but there's also the finesse and um and then I, I i love the vineyard we stopped making it because in 2017 was the last vintage we picked it a couple of weeks before the fires and the fires just came and, and tore the vineyard apart so uh there was no more vineyard for a few years, but I think they're slowly starting to replant uh, some uh, some blocks here and there. It's too bad because it's a it's a small family-owned vineyard, and uh, and you know those guys were very uh, motivated and uh, and about their vineyard and cared for it, uh, you know. And it's too bad it's gone. So they suffered from that. But a lot of people have suffered, and uh, you know they'll 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 be back stronger. Absolutely, no. We certainly in California have experienced um, a lot of um, awful issues. I mean, we're very blessed. Uh, it's a beautiful state with a lot of good weather, but once we get hammered by fires, it's just devastating. Yeah, um, it's interesting. You know, actually, I learned a lot from the fire 2017 and it's something that has impacted me a lot a lot today in the winemaking is uh the conclusion of this interview can be found in the next podcast already available for your download thanks again for tuning in to the official podcast of pal exposure featuring alona thompson